Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Kevin Martin, President of Peace Action, who examines the Biden administration's recent announcement that they will end U.S. support for the Saudi-UAE-led war on Yemen. Madeline Sammons, Communications Director with No Dem Left Behind, who talks about her group's strategy to win votes for Democrats in rural conservative districts across the U.S. And Jerry Greenfield, who with Ben Cohen is a co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, who discusses their recently launched campaign to end qualified immunity for U.S. police officers who abuse their authority. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. President Joe Biden's early foreign policy test came in faraway Myanmar, where that Southeast Asian nation's generals deposed the democratically elected government. The military arrested Aung San Suu Kyi, the de facto head of government and Nobel Peace Prize winner, along with other leaders of her ruling National League for Democracy Party. The U.S. State Department labeled the crisis a coup d'etat, triggering sanctions against the coup leaders. But this may have limited impact since the coup leader, General Ming Ong Lying, already was the target of sanctions for his role in the genocide against tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims. The generals have shut down the Internet, phone service, and banks. A 10-year power-sharing agreement with the military fell apart over the political ambitions of Lying, who faced military retirement as commander-in-chief of the military, possibly making him vulnerable to prosecution for the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims. In a deceitful Trump-style false accusation, the generals justified their coup by claiming there had been massive election fraud, a charge rejected by Myanmar's Union Election Commission, which had confirmed the NLD's November 8th landslide victory. In their first phone call, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin agreed to a five-year extension of the new START treaty. START is the only remaining bilateral nuclear arms control treaty remaining between the two nations. Meanwhile, there is growing concern about reckless proliferation among rogue states, like North Korea, and new potential nuclear nations, such as Saudi Arabia. Although Biden has said he'll work toward reviving the international nuclear deal with Iran that was abrogated by Donald Trump, many of its provisions will expire in a decade. Should Iran at any time look as if it's contemplating going nuclear, Saudi Arabia, under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has few domestic checks on his authority to launch a nuclear weapons program. The Economist magazine observes, Turkey, under its authoritarian leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan could well follow suit. There is dismal progress towards global disarmament, the ultimate aim of the non-proliferation treaty. A new international accord, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was signed by 86 countries and took effect on January 22nd, channels the frustration among many non-nuclear nations but accomplishes little else. President Biden's nominee for Attorney General Merrick Garland is hoping to appoint a longtime tech insider, Susan Davies, to lead the Justice Department's antitrust division. 
Davies worked for Garland in the Clinton-era Department of Justice. However, The Intercept reports that in 2012, Davies represented Facebook in a lawsuit against an advertiser who was removed from the social media giant's platform. Davies' other clients are also of concern to opponents of concentrated corporate power as she worked on behalf of major mergers fending off antitrust enforcement. In December, the Federal Trade Commission launched an antitrust suit against Facebook, looking to break it into its component parts and ban it from the type of anti-competitive behavior Davies had defended as its counsel. The Justice Department is also suing Google for anti-competitive and exclusionary practices, a case filed just ahead of the Facebook prosecution. The outcome of those twin antitrust efforts will hinge not just on technology policy, but in the willingness of the government to take on consolidated power centers that are distorting markets across industries. To have the head of the Justice Department's antitrust division recused from one of those cases would send a very mixed signal about the Biden administration's stated intention to break up destructive monopolies. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After six years of a brutal conflict that's killed more than 230,000 people in Yemen, the Biden administration announced on February 4th that it would end U.S. support for the Saudi-UAE-led war there. Often viewed as a proxy fight between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the oil-rich monarchies intervened in Yemen after Houthi rebels, seen as protectors of the Shia Muslim minority, seized control of large portions of the impoverished nation in 2014, including the capital, Sana'a. Over the last two years, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Congress worked to end U.S. involvement in the Yemen War. In 2019, both the House and Senate passed a historic war powers resolution to end U.S. weapons sales and logistical support for the Saudi-led offensive in Yemen, but the measure was later vetoed by President Trump. Peace advocates welcome President Biden's announcement ending U.S. support for the Yemen war, but many questions remain unanswered, such as the administration's narrowly crafted statement, which only withdrew support for Saudi and UAE offensive operations. Your reporter spoke with Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action, who examines the Biden administration's policy on Yemen and the urgent need to negotiate a diplomatic agreement to end the conflict. What Biden announced last week, which was expected, and we were pressing for this, and so we're glad to see it, was an end for U.S. Uh, offensive military support to Saudi Arabia. And then the next day, they said they were going to take the Houthis, which is the, the group that uh, controls a good part of Yemen now, and that is backed by Iran, uh, would take them off the um, terrorist list, which Mike Pompeo had added them to the terrorism list in his final month or two, I think, as Secretary of State under Trump. So those were good. Uh, The concern, though, is that at least uh, they're they're going to be reviewing U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, which is long overdue, and hopefully also to UAE. 
And again, the support for this has been weapon sales. It's been spare parts for airplanes. It used to include in-air refueling. That was actually ended in 2018 because of the horrible concerns about the bombings of civilian targets by the Saudi uh, Air Force, um, but also intelligence sharing. And that uh, can be difficult if the United States continues to share intelligence. If, for example, we have intelligence about Iranian arms sales to the Houthis or uh, you know, other intelligence that we might share. And supposedly we're not at this point cutting off so-called defensive arms sales. Saudi Arabia has a legitimate concern about rocket attacks from the Houthis that have uh, landed on Saudi soil. But the problem is if you're trying to split hairs between what's an offensive defensive weapon system, it becomes a very slippery slope and, and very uh, fungible in terms of some weapons. So um, the, the announcement in and of itself is not a complete withdrawal of U.S. support for the Saudi and UAE slaughter that they're undergoing in Yemen, but it's, it's a huge step forward, and some of these details will have to be worked out and specified. And also the diplomatic track, of course, has to be strengthened. Martin Griffiths, who is the United Nations mediator or envoy for Yemen, is actually in Iran talking to the Iranian government. So that's a good sign. He has been working hard to try to establish ceasefires, to lift the blockade by Saudi Arabia of the port of Hudaydah, which is the main uh, port for getting goods into and out of Yemen, especially in terms of humanitarian aid. So that diplomatic track needs uh, a lot of support as well from the United States and from others in the region. And again, uh, there has to be some tough love on Saudi Arabia that, okay, you've been our longtime ally and you're the number one purchaser of U.S. weapons from Raytheon and uh, Lockheed Martin, et cetera. But we're shutting that spigot off because we're not going to continue to support this slaughter, uh, particularly, again, the toll on civilians. It's the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world. And it's, again, something a lot of Americans don't know about because this is not something the mainstream media covers regularly. Kevin, for listeners who are concerned about the endgame of ending this conflict in Yemen, what are some of the things that they should be paying attention to or action they should take to do what they can to pressure the Biden administration to make sure this, this conflict ends? Right now, um, as much as we always encourage people to be contacting their members of Congress uh, to support the right policies, Congress has done the right thing twice, and it was vetoed by Trump. We don't think there's necessarily going to have to be another uh, vote in Congress unless that is needed to push the Biden administration to do the right thing. Um, so members of Congress can push the Biden administration for a total review or a total cutoff of arms sales. One of the things that they are doing is holding up and reviewing arms sales that were agreed to under Trump. So that's very good. I'm sort of of two minds about whether the United States should actually be actively involved in diplomacy or are our hands so bloody and our credibility so low that we should stay out of it and just lend our support to the U.N. effort, which I think is seen as more legitimate. Um, that, you know, uh, that remains to be seen. And then, you know, the end game in terms of what happens, it could be something that opens up broader dialogue to end not just this horrible war, but some of the competition for regional supremacy between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And even Saudi Arabia seems to be understanding that that's a losing proposition for them. They actually sent some kind of lower level diplomatic messages to Iran last year to see if there weren't ways that they could talk to each other about 
some of this carnage that's going on in the region that's caused by this, you know, alleged uh, struggle for supremacy in the region. And, and, you know, that's where the Sunni versus Shia dynamic comes in, which I think is somewhat overblown at times. So I think for now it's mostly vigilance and watching details and uh, being ready to uh, weigh in and advocate as needed. But it, it should be the case that the administration now has the tools they need and the support they need to do the right thing. That was Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. Find more analysis and commentary on ending the Yemen war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. No Dem Left Behind is a grassroots organization whose mission is to elect Democrats to Congress from rural, heavily Republican districts. Formation of the group was inspired by the campaign of West Virginian Richard Ojeda, who ran for a House seat in 2018. Although he didn't win, his candidacy generated a lot of excitement. He then became the national spokesperson for No Dem Left Behind. Starting in 2019, the group endorsed 12 candidates for the House in the 2020 election. None of them won, but neither did dozens of other Democratic candidates, including some incumbents. When surveyed about their experience, the endorsed candidates said the best benefit of their campaigns was the camaraderie and not feeling alone. No Dem Left Behind has gained much more visibility and funding since the election, and plans to endorse at least one candidate for Congress in all 50 states in the 2022 midterm election. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Madeline Sammons, communications director with No Dem Left Behind. She was born and raised in very Republican coal country in southern West Virginia and now lives in the capital, Charleston. Here she describes the group's goals and their method of organizing to win votes for Democrats in conservative districts. People in general feel the divide, right? That is not just along party lines, but it's also within party. And I think that when you look at the division, it's very clear that there is there is division between rural America and, and sort of what's going on in our metropolitan areas. And I think that people overall are realizing that the best way forward is if we move, is if we move together as one party. And that means we can't afford to leave any portion of people behind. You know, in rural America, voters have tended to move further and further to the right. But there, we can't have a mindset of, that's a, a lost cause. We can't have a mindset of we can't win there anymore. We have to have the mindset of those voters are just important. Their issues are just as important. And we have to bring all voters together regardless of where they live. How has your message been received among the people you've talked to? What we try to do is really meet people where they are. So when I talk to people about issues that really matter to them and sort of where we stand where the democratic position is, what I found is that we have a lot more in common than what people realize. You know, we tend to get caught up in issues that make for catchy headlines and that make for good hashtags. But at the end of the day, people in rural America are worried about very simple things. They're worried about job security. They're worried about good health care. They want their kids to go to good schools. And they don't want to feel like they're paying more in taxes than a millionaire and billionaire. They feel like they're getting left behind by the system. And so the very core principles of No Doom Left Behind is we have more in common with you as Democrats than what you realize. And I think that when you meet people where they are and you start on those basic founding principles, now you can start a conversation. 
Is it always received? No. There are people who are not open to hearing different ideas or different opinions, and that's just the way it goes, right? But for the most part, you start the conversation on common ground, and people are open. Madeline Sammons, tell me about the goals of No Dem Left Behind. One is we want to change the way that Democrats are perceived in rural America, um, which is a long-term effort, right? That's not something that can just happen in one election cycle or two election cycles. This is this is a long-term plan. The second is we want to elect more Democrats in rural America. We want to see more candidates who look and sound and are from their communities be elected. And that means going into states, finding candidates, and recruiting and giving them the resources that they need. And then, you know, the third goal, I would say, is that we really want to, again, show voters that we have more in common than what you realize. Don't get caught up in the noise that is the Twitter sphere. You know, don't get caught up in the noise that is the catchy headline. We have common values. We have common goals. We are not the enemy. We want to help. And so that that's sort of our three goals. How are you building the organization? Well, you know, um, we are in the era of COVID. So the events have halted. Where we build most of our support is online. So we have a robust email program. We have a robust social media program. When we had candidates, we hosted town halls with um, guest speakers. So Andrew Yang was a, a, a guest for one town hall, and our candidates would join. Um, we had various celebrities that joined those town halls as well. When we have um, more endorsed candidates, we will certainly do those town halls again. But in the era of COVID, you know, we've really really shifted all of our focus on a digital effort hopefully just like the rest of the country we're waiting on a, a bit of normalcy and and hoping one day we can get back to it again in terms of the candidates you endorse would you say they are pretty mainstream or maybe on the conservative side as democrats because they would be more likely to gain more rural support or does it run the whole gamut so it really does run the gamut we want candidates who know their districts and their states best. And so we would never be the top to say you have to do or support this, even though it's not in the best interest of your state or it's not in the best interest of your voters. Like I said, we have founding principles. We have you know founding beliefs that at the end of the day, all states are different. Voters are different. Districts are different, even within states. And so that's sort of the core to our mission. It's why we believe finding the right candidate is so important. Too often you have candidates who they may have great fundraising potential or they may have a lot of coverage in the news or whatever it may be, but they don't actually represent the people in their district. And No Doom Left Behind really wants to change that. We don't expect every candidate to believe every single thing or support every single policy there's founding principles. And then other than that, we really are just looking for people who can win, people who are tied to their communities, people who are natural leaders. That was Madeline Sammons, communications director with No Dem Left Behind. Learn more about the group's campaign strategy in conservative rural districts by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
the Minneapolis police murder of George Floyd, a 46-year-old unarmed African-American man on May 25th last year, set off a nationwide wave of mostly peaceful protests demanding an end to the ugly, unchecked pattern of police violence committed against people of color. The mostly young, racially diverse protesters who took to the streets in more than 100 U.S. cities were often met with indiscriminate physical assaults by police who used tear gas, pepper spray, and rubber bullets. Media camera crews and journalists were often police targets. Moved to action by these massive Black Lives Matter protests, many cities and states across the U.S. undertook efforts to pass police reform legislation. While the House passed the federal George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020, the bill was opposed by Senate Republicans and then-President Donald Trump. The longtime social justice activist co-founders of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, recently launched a campaign to end qualified immunity, the Supreme Court doctrine that shields law enforcement officers from being personally sued for actions performed in the line of duty. Your reporter spoke with Ben & Jerry's co-founder, Jerry Greenfield, who talks about the campaign and explains that if qualified immunity ended, it would make it easier for Americans to sue police officers who abuse their authority. Well, you know, Ben and I got involved with this campaign in particular after the murder of George Floyd. But I think, as we all know, there have been ongoing cases of unarmed black people being brutalized, maimed, and murdered for years, and it continues to go on. And I think the murder of George Floyd was just an example where not only the entire country, but the entire world was outraged. We felt like there was a need to do something about it, to move from protest to policy, and that's what we've become involved in. Uh, You know, you mentioned qualified immunity. It is this legal doctrine that essentially was concocted by the Supreme Court that requires lower court judges to ignore whether any laws were broken and dismiss cases unless another police officer had been found guilty previously in a similar situation. So what it does is it it shields police from accountability. And I'm sure, as you can imagine, there's there's so many detrimental aspects to that, uh, not just around accountability, but in terms of breaking down trust between communities and police, and it protects bad cops, and it's It's got to go. I just wanted to put out there that you often hear from police when this topic comes up of ending qualified immunity, that police have very dangerous jobs, which, of course, is true, and that they often have to make split-second decisions. We're told that you really can't second-guess a police officer's actions in a life-and-death situation, and if you want them to put their lives on the line for you and the community, you've got to give them this legal avenue to protect themselves. Certainly, that's, that's something you've heard a lot since you launched this campaign. What's, what's your response to that? Well, I, I absolutely agree that police have difficult jobs, and they do need to make split-second decisions. They have very good constitutional protections if they make reasonable, good-faith mistakes. That is not a problem for police. The, the problem is 
if they intentionally break the law or make unreasonable mistakes, they are still protected. And the only people that that helps is bad cops. Good cops don't need that protection. It just undermines everything that policing and law enforcement is about. And, uh, you know, Ben and I are business people, and we understand, as all business people do, that accountability is the key to getting desired results. If you don't have accountability, those results do not follow. What action could Congress take in the realm of uh, ending qualified immunity in Congress right now in this new session where the Democrats hold the House, the Senate, and the White House? Uh, Well, actually, during the last House campaign, there was a bill introduced, a bipartisan bill, from Ayanna Presley and Justin Amash to end qualified immunity that did not get passed. I think the general feeling is that there will be some type of police reform bill that comes up before Congress this year. What we're trying to do is make sure that the idea and program of ending qualified immunity does not get stripped out of there. I think often when uh, bills are proposed, people are compromising and taking things out. And ending qualified immunity is so fundamental and so essential that we need to make sure that it stays in there. And that's why we've formed this campaign to end qualified immunity. Our website is just that, campaign to end qualified immunity org and our work is to lift up the stories of thousands of people who are being impacted negatively we have a letter signed by over 650 business people there's this letter from 1400 athletes we're recruiting uh, performing artists and musicians Killer Mike is on board, Portia Williams, Mark Ruffalo. In in business, we have the founder of Shake Shack, the CEO of Converse, the former CEO of Patagonia, the CEO of Seventh Generation. So there are very public and high-profile people who are going to be writing op-eds and letters to the editor using their social media campaigns and What we want to encourage people to do is come to the website, put your email down, and when there are opportunities to uh, get engaged and be in touch with your congresspeople or whatever, we want to be able to reach out to folks. That was Jerry Greenfield, who with Ben Cohen is a co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. Learn more about their campaign to end qualified immunity for police by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio, 
and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, KPRI Res Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>